Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Jolene. It is especially sweet uh, to be here tonight with my brother, my friend John here in the front row. We've known each other the better part of a decade. And to know that you were in a hospital bed about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and you're here now leading us in worship, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. My only more favorite thing in ministry than preaching is, is listening to preaching. And so I wish I were listening tonight to John, but he's going to have to settle for me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are ready. We want to hear from you. And we believe as one church tonight that you build your people with the word of God. Simple, um, desperate um, people who are wanting to hear from you right now. We need you. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So come and address us. Break the bread of life this Good Friday, this evening, and we will thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. May I invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to John in chapter 3. If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app, you're welcome to just pull that out. But if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles in the seats that are found in front of you, uh, the text is found on page 888 in those red Bibles. Page 888, Gospel according to John chapter 3. All told, there are 31,102 verses across the pages of Holy Scripture. I didn't know that. I learned that this week. I didn't know how many verses were in the Bible. That's how many. 31,102. And there's no doubt that when you begin to think about it, uh, there are many truths in God's Word that are so precious that book and chapter and verse have become like muscle memory to you. Isn't that true? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Jeremiah 29, 11. Micah 6, 8. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Romans 8, 28. And speaking of Romans, I mean, Romans has its own road, doesn't it? Um, the Romans road, a number of scriptures that taken together that outline the message of the gospel for us. They outline the message that's at the very heart of the Bible. So Romans 3.23 to Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10.9, Romans 10.13, Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, Romans 8.38 to 39. You put those handful of verses to memory and you have a simple and powerful and wonderful way of both preaching the gospel to yourself as well as to explaining the gospel to others. Nevertheless, I don't suppose that many of us would be willing to debate the claim that there is a verse that over the centuries has simply become far and away the most memorized, the most quoted, and the most publicly placarded truth of the Bible in our culture. 
And I'm speaking, of course, of John 3.16. Now, the public placarding, at least in this past generation, is mainly thanks to a gentleman that you may remember, if you're old enough, by the name of Roland Stewart. Does that ring any bells here? Roland Stewart, also known as Rockin' Roland or the Rainbow Man, he was the guy that wore that crazy rainbow-colored Afro wig at sporting events. And he would manage to get himself in front of the camera with T-shirts on or holding up that iconic sign with John 3.16 scrawled across it. Some of Roland's more famous appearances included the 1977 NBA Finals, the 1979 Major League All-Star Game. Roland even found himself at Prince Charles and Princess Di's wedding. It's possible that Roland Stewart was used of the Lord to embed this biblical address into more consciences in the American public than anyone else in recent decades, Billy Graham included. It's also the sad truth today that that man is serving three consecutive life sentences in a California state prison, even as we speak. Roland Stewart is in desperate need of the very truth that he himself placarded for so many years. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther said this verse is the Bible in miniature. That's a great way to put it. John 3.16 is the Bible in miniature. This This Good Friday, it's our privilege to take this single verse, this Bible in miniature, this storehouse of scriptural treasure, and just ransack what we find. At the end of the day, what keeps us coming back to this verse, I think, is that its focal point is unapologetically the love of God. John's design in this verse, Jesus' design in this verse, is to cause us to reflect and to meditate upon what the love of God is how the love of God is shown, and what difference the love of God makes in our lives. St. Augustine called Christ's cross the pulpit of God's love. And the greatest exposition of that love is John 3.16. I'll say that again. St. Augustine called Christ's cross, I wish I had said it, but he said it, the pulpit of God's love. And the greatest exposition of that love is John 3.16. Tonight, we'll consider three facets, three angles on the cross, and its inseverable connection to what the Bible says about the love of God. Each truth will be drawn from this single most cherished verse in Scripture. Three points. Let's get started. Number one, in the message of the cross, we behold the stunning disposition of God's love. In the message of the cross, we behold the stunning disposition of God's love. John 3.16 begins with the well-known words, For God so loved the world. Now that for indicates that John 3.16, as we might expect, comes to us situated in a particular context. And that context is easily one of the most memorable conversations that takes place in the Bible, isn't it? It's the exchange between the Pharisee Nicodemus and our Lord Jesus. 
even when it comes to John 3.16. In fact, I would argue, especially when it comes to John 3.16, we need to remember that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, context matters. Context shapes meaning. And if there were time to expound John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, I wouldn't title the sermon 316 at all. I'd title the sermon, You Must Be Born Again. The big idea of the broader context of John 316 is that if you want a new life, you must undergo a new birth. Who doesn't want a new life? If you want a new life, you must undergo a new birth. From John chapter 2, verse 23, all the way to John 3, verse 21, Jesus Christ is crystal clear. Jesus is crystal clear on the necessity of regeneration. Jesus is crystal clear on the nature of regeneration. And Jesus is crystal clear on the new life of regeneration. Now, despite Scripture's clarity on the topic, the new birth is a mystery. We confess that it is. And so there remains much confusion, I think, on this point, just as Nicodemus was confused. The Bible teaches that saving faith, for example, is the result of regeneration, not the other way around. The perfect tense verb of 1 John 5.1 puts that beyond the realm of debate, where John tells us in 1 John 5.1 that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. New birth creates the conditions for faith. Faith doesn't create the conditions for new birth. Faith is the gift of God, says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.8. And we cannot have what God does not give. So saving faith is the result of regeneration. And it's important that we know that because that's the immediate context of this verse that we love, John 3.16. 3.16 is a hinge verse because the 4 links it up with what comes in verses 1 to 15 about regeneration. And it serves to help us to pivot to that which follows in verses 17 to 21. So... If we could encapsulate how to think about the paragraph which John 3.16 serves as the headwaters, I'd say that saving faith is the result of regeneration, and you know you've got it. You know you've got saving faith when three things are happening. Number one, you're learning the truth of the gospel. Number two, you're loving the light of Christ. And number three, you're living in the strength that God supplies That's saving faith, learning the truth of the gospel, loving the light of Christ, living in the strength that God supplies. And now that we've done our spade work, we're positioned to appreciate how John 3.16 functions in this broader context. John 3.16 belongs to a subunit of Jesus' teaching about learning the truth of the gospel. If you wanted to know what the gospel is, you could do a lot worse than John 3.16. And the first thing that Jesus wants us to know in verse 16 is that the message of the cross, in that message we behold the stunning disposition of God's love. For God so loved the world. Now we need to be careful as we consider this little word, so. For God so loved the world. The problem isn't that it's not a good translation. It is a good translation. The problem is that how our minds typically tend to construe this good translation. 
When we use the word so with reference to love, we routinely mean to communicate something about the loveliness of our beloved. So we say, I love her so much. Or she loves him so much. And what we mean is that my beloved is downright, objectively, assuredly, and in all other ways, perfectly lovely. That's what we mean. And what we do is that because that's the way we think of this word, we carry those assumptions with us back into John 3.16, and we take the text by the hair of the head and attempt to lead it where it doesn't want to go. Namely, into a message that supports the cult of self-esteem. Like God so loved the world. It doesn't mean that. The word so here is the Greek word hutos, and it can be translated so, but it's the kind of so that means thusly or in this way. Try this translation on for size. For God loved the world this way. Or for those of you who are partial to King Jimmy language, for God so loved the world thusly. It's interesting that if you have the English Standard Version in front of you, the most recent edition includes a footnote on this phrase. That's bold to put a footnote on John 3.16. And they do it without apology. And at the bottom of the page, it suggests a translation. For this is how God loved the world. Okay, now we're cooking with peanut oil. That's what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. This is how God loved the world. Add to that the fact that in the gospel according to John, as well as in the gospel according to the rest of the Bible, the word world doesn't refer to a great big place with lots of super people in it. Especially in John's gospel, the word world refers to a very bad place with lots of rebellious people in it. The word for world in John's gospel and in his other writings is the word cosmos. He uses it 86 times in the New Testament. And the vast majority of the time, the world carries with it overwhelmingly negative connotations. We learn of the sin of the world in John 1.29 and the darkness of the world in John 3.19. We're taught that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. That's John 14, 17. Jesus says that the world offers false peace. And in the face of that false peace, he tells his disciples, my peace I leave with you. My peace, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Moreover, Jesus says flat out to his followers in John 15, 18, that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Translation, the world hates God. Which now helps us to make sense of a text like 1 John 2, 15 to 17, which warns us as believers, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, 
It's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. So in John's thinking, and thus in Jesus' thinking, here in John 3.16, the word world, this is my definition, refers to a planet in suicidal love affair with itself and at the same time in cosmic treason against its creator. That's what world means here. A planet in suicidal love with itself Suicidal love affair with itself and also at the same time living in cosmic treason against its creator. Now that just stands to reason. I mean, John 3.16 at this point just takes its place in full-throated accord with texts like Romans 5, 7 to 8, which reminds us that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were, what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or similarly, as John put it in another place, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, God doesn't love us because we're lovely. He loves us because he is love. There's a difference, and it's not subtle. One way of preaching the first few words of John 3.16 leads you to a gospel of self-esteem. The other way of preaching the first few words of John 3.16 leads you to a gospel of God-esteem. It says a whole truckload about God, that he would love us. What makes God's love in John 3.16 so very different than anything else we encounter is that we rarely consider the unworthiness of the object in verse 16, namely us. B.B. Warfield said over a hundred years ago that world is not a term of extension as much as a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical. And the point of its employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all, and much more to love it as God has loved it when he gave his son. Which brings us to our second point tonight, so let's wrap up the first one. In the message of the cross, we behold the stunning disposition of God's love But secondly, in the message of the cross, we behold the costly expression of God's love. In the message of the cross, we behold the costly expression of God's love. Now, truth be told, I'm I'm borrowing a two-word phrase here from my preaching professor of 18 years ago, Dr. Michael Bulmore. And I can just hear Mike's voice in my head because on the one hand, I want to be careful to give due attribution to where something came from. I don't want to be accused of plagiarism. On the other hand, I can totally hear him saying, because he did tell us once in class, guys don't own words, okay? It's all right. You can use a word or two without saying where you got it from. In other words, relax. So in the interest of playing it safe and so I don't break the Eighth Commandment, I'm just going to say that costly expression came from Mike Bulmore. It's a great way to put it, isn't it? In the message of the cross, we behold the costly expression of God's love. How so? 
Well, we observe how so in the middle portion of our text. Let's start at the top. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. One author I appreciate says that God's love means that he eternally gives of himself to others. I like that. I like that definition of love. I like that definition of love because it seeks to account for the fact that as often as the love of God is mentioned in the Bible, the self-giving of God to himself to others is, is often as well mentioned in the Bible. We've already heard it for us in, in Romans 5.8 and 1 John 4.10, so let's look at a couple of other texts to establish it further. John 3.35, it's the next column over probably in your Bible. It says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Did you hear that? It's his evidence of his love for the Son. He loved that he gave. The Father's loving is displayed in the Father's giving. Or for example, we hear the emphasis in the famous statement of the Apostle Paul as a scripture memory verse that's precious to many of us. Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself for me. I trust you heard at that time. Jesus loved me, Paul said. How does he know that? Because Jesus gave himself for me. In other words, when the Bible says that God loves, the Bible's also clear to demonstrate how God backs that love up. And the cross, well, the cross is the pulpit of God's love. In the message of the cross, we behold not merely the stunning disposition of God's love, but the costly expression of God's love. As Jesus told his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, greater love has no one than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Now, something else to notice before we move on to our final point tonight, and that's simply to ask a question. How does God love us? When I ask how does God love us, understand I'm not inquiring about the display or the expression of that love. It's clear. It's, it's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. The cross is the single most obvious revelation of God's love in the universe. So when I ask how does God love us? I'm not thinking of the demonstration or the exhibition of that love. Rather, I'm asking about the immediacy of that love. To put it another way, does the Father love us directly? Or does he only love us out of respect for his Son? You see the difference between the two? One is a love of immediacy. The other is a love by proxy. One is a love of first degree. The other is a love of second degree. One is a love demonstrated by a kiss full on the lips. The other is a love constrained by a kiss through a plexiglass window. Which is it? Now, before we ventured an answer, let's make one thing abundantly clear. God is wrathful. Toward sin. 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, Romans 1.18. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2.3. Or to put it in John's own language, in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Which certainly does bring this question into sharper focus, doesn't it? How does God love us? Here's the answer to that question. John 3.16 explicitly teaches, whether we will receive it or not, that God doesn't love us because Christ died for us. Rather, Christ died for us Because God loves us. I'll say that again. I tweeted that out this afternoon because it sounded good to me. And some of you may not believe this. Some of you have gotten so up in your head of a theology of the wrath of God appropriately toward sinners and their sin that you can't take this on board. And I want to invite you to tonight if you haven't. God doesn't love us because Christ died for us. Rather, Christ died for us because God loves us. And just in case that weren't blindingly clear from John 3, 16, Jesus says it over in John 16, 27, in what I regard to be perhaps five of the sweetest words in the Bible. You ready? The Father himself loves you. Jesus said that. The Father himself loves you, John 16, 27. Do you believe it? Reflecting on John 3, 16, the New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett simply concluded, the mission of the Son was the consequence of God's love. That's exactly right. And if you were to ask the final question, how can we possibly reconcile the Bible's parallel teaching for the hatred of God against sinners in their sin on the one hand, and the love of God for sinners in their sin on the other. My answer is that there's only one place in the universe where that could be reconciled, the cross. At the cross, in the words of Psalm 85.10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. The cross is the pulpit of God's love, and the greatest exposition of that love is John 3.16. In the message of the cross, we behold the costly expression of God's love. He gave his only son. If you were ever to question God's love for you, you need only to look to the cross. Does God love you? God crushed his son for you. He loves you. He loves you very much. Oh, how he loves us. The Father himself loves you. Third and final point tonight. In the message of the cross, we behold the eternal vindication of God's love. In the message of the cross, we behold the eternal vindication of God's love. Well, how do we access what he's done for us? So many of us know this, but we ought to rehearse this because it's good for our souls. We can't hear it enough. 
John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, and I love the King James at this point, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that the most refreshing news you could ever hope to hear? Notice what this text doesn't say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever behaves for him should not perish but have eternal life. doesn't say that. Notice it doesn't say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever becomes the right kind of person for him should not perish but have eternal life. doesn't say that either. It doesn't even say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever beseeches him in exactly the right way should not perish but have eternal life. You know why it doesn't say that? Because that's not the gospel. Oh, the gospel is scandalous, isn't it? Romans 4, 4, and 5, the Apostle Paul glories in the scandal when he writes, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but who trusts in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Helping us to further glory in the scandal, Sinclair Ferguson said this, Our greatest temptation and mistake is to try to smuggle character into God's work of grace. How easily we fall into the trap of assuming that we remain justified so long as there are grounds in our character for justification. I want to tell you, I struggle with that temptation routinely. Routinely. Trying to smuggle character into God's work of grace. John 3.16 would counsel otherwise. Now, if you want some balance, then J.C. Ryle's got some balance for you. Here's what Ryle said back in 1869. That which gives a man interest in Christ is not his living, but his faith. If we would know whether our faith is genuine, we do well to ask ourselves how we are living. Which is why John 3, 17 to 21 follow hard on the heels of John 3, 16. But if we would know whether we are justified by Christ, there is but one question to be asked. That question is, do we believe? That's good. That's really good. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believes, believeth in him. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, that only addresses justification by faith. The point of this point is that in the message of the cross, we behold the eternal vindication of God's love. What's that mean? It means that in the cross, uniquely in our exclusion or embrace of the cross, there are consequences that echo into eternity. That's how John 3.16 ends. Notice the word perish is set off in contrast over against those words eternal life. You see that? They balance each other. This unquestionably means that when Jesus speaks of perishing, he speaks of a perishing that never comes to an end. The movement of which our church is a part and in which Pastor John is ordained is the Evangelical Free Church of America. 
And then the EFCA Statement of Faith, Article 10, reads as follows. We confess that we believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to Him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment. Let that burn in. Eternal conscious punishment. And the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen. We believe that. I suspect you believe that too. Unflinchingly, unhesitatingly, we, we believe that because John 3.16 teaches it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Max Lucado observes, perish. It's a sobering word. We'd like to dilute, if not delete the term. Not Jesus. Do not enter signs are what he pounds on every square inch of Satan's gate. And he tells those hell-bent on entering to do so over his dead body. Even so, some souls insist. Well, let's review where we've been tonight. St. Augustine called Christ's cross the pulpit of God's love. The greatest exposition of that love is John 3.16. In the message of the cross, we behold probably a thousand things, but just three for our purposes tonight. The stunning disposition of God's love the costly expression of God's love, and the eternal vindication of God's love. Max Licato, once again, said of this verse of the Bible that it's a 26-word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything about the Bible, return here over and over again. That's good advice. In fact, if you happen to be with us this evening and you don't know Jesus, I assure you, you don't just happen to be here this evening. It's like nights like this when people get saved. Nothing is happenstance. Won't you come to Jesus Christ tonight? May God grant you the grace to see in him all of his blinding holiness as much as you can take and to see yourself in light of your sin and your rebellion against him. And then may he enable you to turn from yourself and toward your Savior who lived and died, bled for you. And to know that just as his burial assured his death, so too did his post-mortem appearances assure his resurrection. Jesus isn't dead today. He's very much alive. And one day soon to return 
and ultimately to establish his reign on this earth as the uncontested king of the world, as the ruler of the kings of the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. If you hear his voice this night, I urge you not to resist him another moment. Turn to him. Come to him. Repent and believe the gospel tonight. Tonight is the night of salvation. And finally, if you're with us tonight and you do know Jesus, which I suspect is most of you, through what part of these familiar words of John 3.16 is God speaking to you in a fresh way? This Holy Week especially, let's not forget that Christianity is for sharing. It's for sharing. With whom could you seek to share this message, even this weekend, these words? Aren't you glad someone shared these words with you? The gospel's only good news if it gets there in time. And the gospel is very, very powerful when it does. So enjoy the gospel yourself, yes. But entrust the gospel to others especially as we approach Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what else is there to say? Thank you for the old paths, as Jeremiah 6.16 says, to stand by the road, look for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. We have walked in an old path tonight. How I pray that you would give these words, this verse, John 3.16, fresh rain over our souls. May these words thunder across our souls all weekend and into the Easter season. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for obeying and agreeing with your Father to love the world in this way. You don't love us because we're lovely. You love us because you are love, and that means your love is secure. It doesn't rise and set with our fickleness. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.